uh, we will be returning to our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, next Sunday, uh, we're going to have a short mini-sermon tomorrow night, uh, but we'll be getting back to Revelation chapter 13 a week from today. I really enjoyed being away from it for a little while, <laughs> even though I, I, I tell you, this series we're doing on Revelation, I haven't enjoyed anything as much as this, I think, in the whole time I've been a pastor demands a lot of study time and all of that, but I've grown immensely, I think, in my understanding of the book, and I hope you have too, and so we will be getting back to that. Uh, But for this morning, we're going to jump back into the gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 2. We're just going to look at the first seven verses here. So read with me if you would. It came about in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken to all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken when Cyrenius was uh, uh, governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of uh, Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child, and it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them uh, in the end. One of the things that I hope that you have gleaned from our study here in the Gospel according to Luke over the last couple of weeks uh, is the sovereignty uh, of God. And the fact that God has indeed foreordained everything, all things that come to pass. If you look at the shorter catechism, question number seven is this. What are the decrees of God? And the answer is the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now there are Christians in the church today that would probably have some argumentation in regard to that statement that we understand this common sense demands that God has determined everything. And he not only controls what uh, comes to be, but he uses different means and purposes to accomplish it. And we know that that is out of necessity. How would things be for us if someone could come along at some point and throw a monkey wrench into the works? Now, the words, God doesn't only control the ends, he also controls the means by which those ends are reached. And that is in, in regard to absolutely everything. Not just certain things, but all things. Our God is a mighty, all-powerful God. He controls this universe that he created, and everything that lies outside of it in that spiritual realm that we've talked so much about in the 
Revelation study. Now, when you say things like this to some people, it grates on them. Because people don't want that kind of a God. People want a small God. People want a God that they can control. That my friends, this is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God of creation. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. There is nothing that can upset his apple cart. There is nothing that will. And let me just say this. When you understand that that is how God truly is, it gives you a sense of assurance that you could never have apart from it. Very many people out there in this world today will be worshiping a God that is a God of their own making. Not the God of the Bible, not the God who is, but a God that they can manipulate, the God that they can pacify. What we're seeing here is the unfolding of things that God determined would be at the very beginning of eternity. Spoken forth through prophets, Micah in particular, Micah chapter 5, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the very location where the Messiah would be born. Bethlehem. We live in a day when people just love, I think this is always true, that people have loved fairy tales. I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings. I love it. Lori and I had a, we had a, a Saturday a few weeks ago when we didn't have a whole lot to do. And we just decided that we're going to have, you know, Lord of the Ring after Lord of the Ring and try to hold the, watch the whole thing in a day. We didn't quite make it, I think. We fell asleep at some point or the other and, and all of that. But I love the Lord of the Rings. And one of the reasons is this. Some people don't realize it, but... Tolkien was a Christian, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of Christ in, 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 in Christianity depicted in this fairy tale. There are a lot of people out there in the world today who believe that what you and I are celebrating now is nothing other than a fairy tale. It's one of those once upon a time things. It really isn't true. It's just something that people made up along the way. The truth, guys, is this. Is the Christmas story really is the ultimate and only true once upon a time. Notice here God utilizing the things of men to accomplish his purposes. Caesar Augustus, who by all measures was not a believer, wasn't a Christian. He persecuted Christians. 
He decreed that this census would take place. Now, you might think this is an unusual thing. It actually was not unusual in the Roman world. And you may not really understand what the whole purpose of this census or registry was for. It was for tax purposes. The Roman world and the Roman Empire, they did this every 14 years. So this was not something that was extremely unusual. We have records written records for many of the years around 230 B.C. all the way down into A.D. Records every 14 years of these registries. The reference here to the inhabited world is a a reference to the Roman world. You need to understand that wasn't to everyone that existed on planet Earth in those days. They estimate that the population about this time was around, in the world, as far as people go, was around 300 million people. You had this huge Chinese dynasty going on in, in Asia and other places where there were lots and lots of people. The Roman world only made up for a small fraction of that. God uses this to bring about that which he said would take place 700 years earlier. Remember, Mary and Joseph were living in Nazareth, even though Bethlehem was their hometown. Remember in those days that uh, there were not the kinds of travel amenities that we have today, that it was... You may not realize the distance, but we're talking about anywhere to, to go from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem was anywhere from 70 to maybe 150 miles, depending on which route you took. If you went directly and you cut through Samaria, which most Jews did not do because the Samaritans were the untouchable ones, the ones you didn't speak to, you didn't have any association with, so they avoided Samaria like the plague. And typically, Jews that were traveling from Galilee to Judea, they would cross over the Jordan River to the other side, the Transjordan area, and they would travel south there and then cut back in Judea just to miss the Samaritans. If that is the route that Mary and Joseph took, then it took it was a, probably 110 or 20 miles. They weren't in a car. They weren't in an airplane. They were not on a train. There are a lot of things that you and I assume about the birth of Jesus, and one of those is this, is every time I've ever seen a depiction of Mary, she's been on a donkey. That's not from Scripture, guys. There's no place in, in the Scripture that talks about Mary riding on a donkey. More than likely, Mary walked the distance. That whole distance. Very pregnant. And only a woman that's been very pregnant can probably even relate to how difficult something like that possibly could have been. It's very likely that they were walking on Roman-built roads. 
they have found evidence recently of extensive Roman highways. They were roads that crisscrossed all over Judea and Samaria and Galilee. It seems like we can't get away from taxes, right? You know, what they say is there's two things that are certain in life. One of those is death and the other one's taxes. We all understand that. But it's not something new. That a lot of the tax money that they were paying, the tax money that Mary and Joseph were paying probably was going to things like road projects. Just like when you and I do the same sort of thing. They had a destination. It was Bethlehem. Bethlehem just simply means house of bread. And Bethlehem has a history as far as the Bible goes. If you think about it, it was the setting of the book of Ruth. And a lot of what Ruth had to do was with the harvesting of grain. See, Bethlehem was a place where agriculture was very uh, greatly done. A lot of the growing of grain, and so therefore the production of bread is called the house of bread. It's also the birthplace of David, where David grew up. The days of David, it was probably more of a prominent place than it was in the days of Jesus. By the time Jesus came along, it had kind of declined as far as its importance, and it had become a relatively small village by all estimation. 300 to maybe 1,000 people lived in Bethlehem. At one time, it was more of a prominent city. But we've gone somewhat through the genealogies of Jesus, and one of the most important things we get from the genealogies is that Jesus is descended of King David to fulfill those prophecies. The second Samuel 7 promise that God made to David that he would have an heir on the throne, not just for a little while, but for all of eternity, that his kingdom would go on forever. You see, God is using the circumstances of people and the things going on in the world to orchestrate into every minute detail what he said very long before this would come to pass actually does come to pass. Mary was required to appear with her soon-to-be husband. Wives had to register also. She was with child, and we've talked so much about this over the last two weeks child that came to be because of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And we talked about all this social chit-chat that probably went on in regard to this, that uh, people around them were concluding, probably family members and other folks, that one or two things actually happened here. Either, uh, either uh, Joseph and Mary have had premarital relations that they should not be having, or Mary's been unfaithful to Joseph. We're given a lot of details, and one of those is this, is, is how do you think Joseph would have responded to this? Well, we know how he responds. That's only because Joseph also had a visit by an angel that revealed to him that all of this was going to take place. 
But you can imagine being in the shoes of Joseph. I guess we can't imagine being in the shoes of Joseph. We can't imagine being in the shoes of Mary either. But she had returned back to Bethlehem. Remember, she went and she spent months, many months, with Elizabeth, her cousin. And only when, just before Elizabeth birthed John the Baptist, did Mary return back to Bethlehem to be with Joseph. While they're there, the time comes for her to give birth. Birth like no other birth. Unusual birth. The only one in all of eternity like this. Nothing at all compares to it. The time when the Son of God makes his grand entrance, not so grand entrance, into this world, this fallen world. We talked a little bit about this, I think, last week or the week before. And that is when we think about miracles, you know, that have to do with Jesus, we always jump to the resurrection. But the resurrection was made possible only because of something that came before that. That's what we call the incarnation. The time when the Son of God actually took upon himself, in addition to his divinity, a human nature and a human body. Either the Christmas story is true or it's not. Either it's true or it's just another one of those fantasies. It's just another fairy tale. If it's not true, then you and I are to be pitied because we have put all of our hope in nothing, emptiness, meaninglessness. But if it's true, let me just read a few quotes to you. If it's true, nothing in fiction, in other words, not the Beauty and the Beast, not uh, Cinderella and the, or Snow White and the, the Dwarfs and all those things, not the Lord of the Rings, Nothing in fiction is so fantastical as the truth of the Incarnation. C.S. Lewis said this, In the Christian story, God goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world 
with him. Someone else said this, he himself has gone through the whole human experience. Now, there were the other words, Jesus coming into the world was God relating to people at our level. Coming face to face with us. And added to that is this thought. That he thought it was well worth his while. Let me read that again. He himself has gone through the whole human experience and thought it well worth his while because it was through that human experience that Jesus gained for us that which we would not have otherwise. The supreme miracle of Christianity is not the resurrection, but the incarnation. Some other things. The whole concept of the stable is an assumption that we make. And how many times have you ever seen the depiction of the birth of Jesus that it's not in this stable somewhere? Let me tell you, the Bible does not say for, for certain it was in a stable talks about a manger. A manger is just simply a cattle trough. And in the Greek, the particular word that relates here can just as easily mean a cattle trough sitting out under the open sky as it is inside of a building of any sort. Jesus came into the most humble beginnings that any person ever probably has. the very Son of the God Most High. How many people here were laid in a manger when they were born because they didn't have a crib or a cradle? How many people here were possibly born out under the open sky because there was no room for you anywhere? Not in the end. Not necessarily somewhere else. You wouldn't believe all the stuff Caroline just went through having Kenley just recently and all the, the equipment and all of the special this and the special that and this, that and the other, not only for Caroline but for Kenley as well. Just think about the contrast between that and the circumstances under which Jesus was born. It's like night and day difference. No evidence that there was even anyone there to help her, but maybe Joseph. No room for him in the inn. How much room is there in your own life for Jesus? 
And how much time do you have for him? How central is he to everything in your life? How much have you given to him when he's given you everything? Seriously, guys, how much room is there? Our lives are busy as all get out. Sometimes I feel like I'm trying to drink water out of a fire hose. You know, it's running from here, running to there, doing this, doing that. And sometimes you want to look and you want to reflect and you wonder how, how valuable is even doing that. How, how much is it really worth the time to do this, that, and the other? But we keep getting trapped in the same old scenario over and over again. Busy, 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 busy. And the first person we begin to push out of our life is God. How much room is there in your heart for Jesus? Seriously. How important is he to you? We talked last week about celebrating There's all kinds of things today that people celebrate that are not worth celebrating. I know people that seems like they celebrate almost every day of the week. But it's over things that are not even worth celebrating. It's just celebrate for the purpose of celebrating. For having the fun of celebration and all the stuff that goes along with it. Hey guys, if we can't celebrate Christmas... There's anything worth celebrating. It's got to be something like Christmas. The birth of Jesus. We need to be celebrating like we celebrate nothing else except maybe the resurrection at Easter time. Nothing else that comes close to either one of them. Seriously. We're going to celebrate Christmas big time here tomorrow night. I hope you're all here. I hope there's so many people here that people have to stand up. And let me tell you, I'll be the first one to stand the whole time and not think twice about it. You can have my seat right up here. How many people have you invited? How many people have you encouraged to come and be a part of that? How many people have you shared the Christmas story with this Christmas? How many people have you shared the the Christmas story with in your whole lifetime? There's nothing more important. Nothing more important ever than what we are reflecting upon this morning. It stands above and beyond everything else that ever has been and ever will be. God himself coming into this world on a mission. 
to save people like us. It's unbelievable. Fantastical. Beyond fantastical. It's also true. True as true gets to be true. This is our God. This is how much our God cares about us. People today are starving for love. And the vast majority of them really are looking for it in all the wrong places. There's a yearning that every human heart has to be loved totally, completely. And they're going to try to find it in people. And the problem is because we're all broken by sin, they're never going to find it in people. They're never going to find that unconditional, absolutely perfect love that we all long for, we all yearn for. We would all probably give up anything we could to have. God's love is not like people's love. It's perfect. It's absolutely forgiving. It is all-encompassing. It is never-ending. It is eternal. That's what this is all about. That's the heart and soul of this Christmas story. Of God expressing his love in fantastical ways for people like us. Celebrate. But don't forget why you're celebrating. this is what is worth celebrating to the full.